Well, so this morning uh, and through January, what we're doing is a series called One Story, and we are quite simply walking our way through the biblical story. Uh, my goal in this series is not that you'd come away with a nice, tidy little practical application of, you know, be a more forgiving person or do this better or behave yourself and don't do this sin but do this thing anymore, but rather to get a big sense of the big story. That's the point. And we spent last week walking our way through the story of the Old Testament, right from creation, right at the beginning, right through to uh, Israel after the exile uh, and where Israel finds itself. And, and we will this week walk through the rest of the biblical story. Uh, but I just want to say at the outset that sometimes when you, when you do this the way we're doing it and talk about the Old Testament and then talk about the New Testament, uh, you can kind of give the idea that we're talking about two separate stories. You know, in your Bible, most of you have got a page in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, like a blank page. There's that, that little blank sheet of paper just before Matthew chapter 1. I was considering having you know, us all have a ceremonial burning of that blank page because I think it gets in the way of what the Bible's supposed to be. You know, in one sense, you can understand there is the, 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 the Old Testament and what God was doing through Israel, and there is the New Testament, and there is a clear division, but in a lot of other ways, it is all one story, and it's so important to see and hear that continuity. If you were living within Palestine in the first century in the time that Jesus was around, you wouldn't have thought, well, I'm just at the end of the Old Testament era, and that's gone now, and I wonder what God's going to do in the New Testament. This is going to be exciting to see. It wouldn't have happened like that. You would have just been living life. You would have been doing your thing. Israel was just, it was where it was in history, with all of what God had done beforehand, uh, and no idea of what God was going to do uh, in the future, because in many ways, the Old Testament is a story in search of an ending. And it builds and it builds and it builds. But as you, as you get to the first chapters of the New Testament, the first books of the New Testament, you find Israel having returned back from captivity several hundred years earlier in Babylon, captivity and exile uh, to a foreign nation, but still very much an occupied people. Israel was under the boot of the Roman government. Israel was an oppressed and a conquered nation who had very little of its own autonomy and authority. It was... Uh, an occupied people in Palestine. The Roman Empire extended through most of the known world. That's where Israel found itself. And there was a view within Israel that even though the nation had returned from its exile in Babylon and was at least in its own land, that in many ways Israel was still in a state of spiritual exile from God. That Israel was still waiting expectantly for God to return to Zion, for Yahweh to come back as the great warrior king and destroy Israel's enemies, and establish Israel as the great world superpower that God had promised she would be through the Old Testament prophets like Ezekiel and Zechariah. That's the hope that Israel had. That's the expectation. Those are the, the, those are the anticipations that are floating around in the air when Jesus arrives. And Jesus of Nazareth steps onto the scene. He's born in an obscure backwater village, he spends the first 30 or so years of his life as a tradesman. He then becomes an itinerant preacher, rabbi. He's then executed by the Roman government on charges relating really to treason and, and sedition against the empire. And that's his life. That, I mean, you would read that in any history book. Those are the facts on the ground. That's who Jesus was. But far more important than that is the meaning and the significance attached to this life and to this man. It's really important to realize that Jesus 
didn't just drop in from heaven to any old time and die on a cross for our sins. It's not like Jesus could just have appeared at any time, in any culture, in any place, just kind of popped onto the scene. Sometimes we talk about Jesus as if, you know, God created the world and then mankind sinned and the next thing to happen was Jesus, like the rest of the Old Testament didn't happen. But Jesus, the best way, the most important way to think about Jesus is that he is the fulfillment of Israel's story. He's the climax and the culmination of Israel's story. That's the whole point of calling Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. He brings Israel's story to its incredible fulfillment and conclusion, and then that becomes a new beginning of a whole new story, which is actually the same story, but just now reconfigured. Jesus comes as Israel's Messiah. That's actually the significance of the title Son of God. When you hear Son of God, what do you think? You think Jesus being divine. You think that means Jesus is God, and of course he is. But that title, Son of God, that was a name given to Israel. When God sends Moses to Pharaoh way back in Exodus, he says, go and tell Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may worship me. See how God's referring to Israel as his son. Israel was God's son. God was Israel's father. So when Jesus comes along and the New Testament writers start talking about him as the son of God, what kind of connotations would this have had? That Jesus is the embodiment of what Israel was always supposed to be. That Jesus is the representative of who Israel was to be in the world. Israel was to be that light to the nations. Israel was to be that hope to the world. Israel was to be the carrier of God's promises, the antidote to the problem of sin. And now Jesus, Messiah, has taken all that to himself. He is the embodiment of Israel. He is now the true and faithful Israelite, the last faithful Israelite in a sense. And he's carrying forward the promises. And he's carrying forward the calling of Israel in the world. It all comes down to this one man. That's why you see Jesus, for example, in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. What he's doing is reliving Israel's story all over again. Jesus does in 40 days what Israel did in 40 years. Out in the desert, facing temptation, seeking to be faithful to God. Jesus is reliving Israel's story. He is the true Israelite. He's carrying forward the promises and the calling of Israel. And then Jesus starts talking about this thing called the kingdom of God, which Daniel had promised was going to happen, and Ezekiel had promised was going to happen, Zechariah had promised was going to happen, God was going to establish his kingdom. God was going to come and reign on earth, except that Israel thought this was just going to be a kingdom about Israel. But as Jesus starts talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, it becomes apparent that this kingdom is not just an Israel thing. It's a humanity thing. It's a creation thing. The kingdom of God is this whole new social reality where people are brought back into relationship with God and with one another and with the world. It's an entirely new world. And Jesus is talking about it. And Jesus is demonstrating it. And Jesus is working it out in his miracles, in his teaching, in his interactions, in those quiet moments with the disciples. Jesus is talking them through what this life in the kingdom of God, what does it look like when God comes and reigns? Not just a physical territory where God 
has this realm, but what does it look like when God comes and reigns on earth? What does it look like when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven? These are the things that Jesus is opening up with that idea of the kingdom of God. This is what he's bringing about. And all of this pulls us through to the cross, pulls us through to the, the, to the death of Jesus, where Jesus dies as a representative both of Israel and of all humanity. So Jesus, in one sense, Paul talks about this in Galatians, Jesus dies to take upon himself Israel's curse. Jesus goes through on the cross the ultimate exile, the ultimate alienation from God, separated from God. He goes through this on behalf of God's people. But in an even broader sense, on behalf of all humanity, Jesus bears our sin within his own body. That's how Peter describes it. He himself bore our sin in his body. Somehow he earths it in his own being. He, he so profoundly identifies with our humanity. He so profoundly enters into the experience of our fallen and our broken and our weak and our stuffed up frail humanity that on the cross, Paul can even say he became sin. What does that mean? There's a depth of meaning there I don't understand that he became sin for us. So profound was his entering into our weakness and suffering and sin that he takes it on himself. Maybe you could think of like a, like a lightning conductor absorbing those bolts of lightning and earthing them within itself. This is what Jesus does on the cross for all humanity, for our sin. He dies for us. He dies on our behalf. And he dies with us. The cross is God's ultimate act of solidarity with us as human beings. His ultimate act of being among us and taking upon himself the fullness of the human experience. On the cross, God stands with the broken, with the weak, with the victim, with the oppressed and the outcast. He identifies with us so strongly in order to incorporate us into his identity and into himself. And so a couple of days after Jesus' death, on Easter Sunday morning, Jesus somehow miraculously walks out of that tomb. God raises him from the dead. Sometimes we don't quite know what to do with the resurrection. Sometimes we talk about Jesus like the only important thing he ever did was die on the cross. His life wasn't that important and his resurrection wasn't that important. But they are. They're so important. When Jesus walked out of that tomb on Easter Sunday morning, it's like a whole new future walked out with him. That thing he'd been talking about, that kingdom of God that he'd been describing, that opened up on Easter Sunday. It came rushing out of the tomb with him. This new creation, this new world, this new reality, this possibility of reconciliation with God and reconciliation with others and even reconciliation with the world. It all becomes possible now because of the, rec- because of the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is the first installment of that kingdom of God. The first fruits, as Paul describes it, of all those who will rise from the dead like the first down payment of what is promised. You see in the resurrection close up what God is one day going to do for the whole world. What God did for Jesus on Easter Sunday, he'll one day do for all those who love him and follow him and are united to him. It's a little close up look at what resurrection life actually looks like. And Jesus gets there first. He's the pioneer of this resurrected life. He comes out of the grave. He appears to people, over 500 people, over many days, And then he ascends to heaven. He returns to heaven. 
still, I think, in his humanity. I would argue that Jesus, even now, in his ascended form, sitting at God's right hand, still keeps that humanity. I don't think Jesus' body was just like a cicada skin that he threw away. I think he still maintains his humanity now. And I think he'll be human again, even when he returns. But Jesus ascended to heaven. He told his disciples just before he went, he said, stick around because something's going to happen that's going to blow your mind if you just stay here in Jerusalem for a few days. So they did. And they stuck around and they're praying and they're worshiping. And, and, and you can imagine, I mean, we, we have the whole story now, but for these followers of Jesus, it must have been hugely confusing. They thought that he was going to be this type of Messiah and then he died. What does that all mean? And then he's been resurrected. What does that mean? And now he's ascended to heaven and, what, and he's told us to stay around. They would have just been trying desperately to process this. And, and I can imagine them too in that time going back and rereading their Old Testament a lot and maybe starting to realize he was there all along and we never saw him. So then Jesus' disciples are huddled in, in a room on the day of Pentecost and God sends the Holy Spirit upon them. The Spirit of Jesus who is God himself, comes upon Jesus' disciples in incredible power and gives them this miraculous ability to speak in the tongues of other nations, to speak in the tongues of the people that were around at the time, because they'd all come in for Pentecost, uh, the tongues of people that were there. And this is a great symbol and a sign of God's redemptive love, God's saving love moving out into the nations. It's no longer just an Israel thing. It's no longer just for these people in this nation on these terms. Now it's for all people. Now all the promises in the Old Testament that the nations would be gathered in, the nations would come and worship God in Jerusalem, all of this was taking place. And what better sign to accompany this than the sign of tongues? That people spoke in these tongues of these people who were there, actual human languages, so that these people understood as a symbol of what God was now doing, moving out into the nations, gathering the nations in, and forming this people promised to Abraham way back in Genesis 12. That's where it started. Remember last week we talked about that? God makes these promises to Abraham. I will bless you and make you a great nation, and all nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Fast forward to Pentecost. That's exactly what's happening now. All nations of the earth are gathering and all nations of the earth are being blessed, no longer just this one national ethnic tribe of Israel. And so the good news ripples out and Peter stands up on that day and preaches this great sermon and tells the story of Jesus' death and resurrection and tells the story of Israel and Jesus as its fulfillment and invites people to respond by believing in Jesus, by repenting, turning away from the life they'd been living, turning towards Jesus and being baptized as a sign and a seal of their commitment to Jesus. And thousands of people take him up on the offer and you have a little community formed, pretty big community actually. Instant church right there. And this community becomes the carrier of the promises of God, the hope to the world the community that's now entrusted with taking this message about Jesus, the good news of his death and his resurrection, the announcement, that's what the gospel is, an announcement that Jesus is Lord and taking that to all nations and inviting people to trust in Christ, anchor their lives in Christ, be reconciled to him and become his agents of reconciliation. Church has humble beginnings. It starts in Jerusalem. And ironically enough, what tends to grow it is persecution. 
The Jewish leaders would try and crack down on the church, try and, try and put Christians to death, try and stamp out the movement. Jesus' followers would be scattered to other cities, and there they'd start little house churches. And it's that sort of paradox that led to the church continuing to grow, and it just rippled out through the known world. One of those guys that was a fierce persecutor of the church was a guy named Paul. He was a Jewish man. He was a Pharisee. He was basically the equivalent today of, of a religious or political terrorist, state-sponsored terrorism, doing all he could to put Christians to death and use violent means in order to stamp out this little movement that he thought was a total plague upon Israel. But God gets a hold of Paul's life in a dramatic way on the Damascus Road, appears to him, challenges him, and gives him a job to do. That's really the significance of the Damascus Road experience. Not so much that Paul gets converted, but that Paul gets a commissioning. He gets a job, he gets a calling, and God says, ironically enough, given how much Paul hated non-Jewish people, God says, I'm going to make you my instrument to the Gentiles. That's you, Paul. It's like God's got a sense of humor. You know, Paul hated Gentiles. He hated non-Jewish people. That's the whole reason he was persecuting the church. God says, guess what? They're the ones I'm sending you to. You are going to go and speak my message to them. You are going to go and invite them into the life of Jesus. And you're going to reach them, not just your own people. I find it wonderful that toward the end of Paul's ministry, he talks about this beautiful offering of, of the Gentiles that he's making to God, that he's, in a sense, offering up their faith, their life to God. It's this fragrant aroma. And, and you see how far he's come in his love for them, in his love for non-Jewish people, in his, in his compassion and desire that they would know the same Jesus that he knows. It's far later in Paul's ministry. But Paul is the one who's primarily responsible for getting the, the, the whole Jesus movement and the gospel across that big cultural divide between Jews and Gentiles, pulling it through into new regions, planting churches in new areas that had never heard about Jesus, among people that were following all kinds of Roman and Greek gods of the time. And Paul comes in preaching this message about Jesus, and they didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know how to place it, but a lot of them accepted it. And little communities of Jesus people were formed in scattered cities all across the Mediterranean. And Paul takes the gospel across this geographic divide as well, out of Jerusalem and out of Israel, into Turkey, uh, into Greece, and then into Italy. He eventually gets to Spain. He just keeps going further and further, and the gospel keeps spreading, and people keep getting transformed, and the church is carrying forward this, this role of being a light to the nations, transforming the world, literally with the love and the good news of this Jesus who was crucified and resurrected. And the church keeps growing, and it keeps moving forward. And by the time you get to the third century, it's so powerful, uh, not, not, in, not in kind of an arrogant or authoritarian way, but its movement is so immense that one of the Roman emperor, emperors, Constantine, is converted to Christianity. And Christianity then becomes the state religion of Rome. Now, some people look at that and argue that was not a good thing for the church, because at that point it became very enmeshed with state power, became sort of church-state combination. And a lot of historians would say that was really the beginning of a decline for the faithful church. Nevertheless, it illustrates just what incredible influence this little movement, which had gone from nothing, from a, from a, from a few kind of fledgling little supporters in the first century, through to a massive movement of life and hope and restoration and renewal for the world, and it changed the world. It changed the Roman Empire. And so it has continued to do down through the centuries, down to today. 
the life and the love of Jesus keep rolling forward. And in a very real way, we are the beneficiaries of all that. This is what I want you to understand, that we stand in the same story. We are, we are the legacy of that early movement. We are the beneficiaries of that, that movement and that mission that Paul undertook to the Gentiles. If it had just stayed within Israel and stayed at Jerusalem, we'd never be here, most of us. But we're here because people took that gospel and they took it out and they took it forward and they showed and they demonstrated and they shared the life of Jesus to those who didn't know him. And so the church today carries on that work in all kinds of ways, all kinds of contexts across the globe in so many different areas, carrying forward and being faithful to the promises of God and continuing to build that global community that was promised way back in Genesis 12 to Abraham and inviting people to be transformed by Jesus and inviting people to be then his agents of renewal and transformation in the world around them. The kingdom of God is still advancing. The new creation is still springing up all over the place. Wherever the Spirit of God is active, wherever the reign of God is breaking in, wherever the kingdom of heaven is coming and God's will is being done on earth as it is in heaven, then there's good news and there's hope and there's life and Jesus is continuing to be proclaimed. Now, the wonderful thing about the Scriptures and the story that we're telling of the Bible is that it's not finished yet. And we get in various places in the Bible, not just in Revelation, in a, in, in a bunch of different areas, we get glimpses into what's yet to come. And this is so important because who we are in the present is an anticipation of who we will become and what God is yet to do. And the story that God tells of what's yet to come is that one day Jesus will become present again. There's going to be another incarnation. There's going to be another advent. There's going to be a better and a greater Christmas, if you want to put it that way. Jesus will become physically, bodily present again. And this time he's coming to put everything right, to bring the kingdom of heaven in its fullness. Jesus will come as judge. And the idea of that word, judgment, mishpat, is the putting right of things that are not right. It will be the exclusion of unrighteousness, the exclusion of those who have not trusted Christ, who have not united themselves to him, who have not chosen him and joined themselves to him. There will be that exclusion of that so that God can usher in this glorious new creation that he's planning for those who love him. And that glorious new creation is nothing less than a complete transformation of the cosmos, a complete transformation, time, space, and matter an utter reconfiguration of this world so that this present world becomes mingled and joined with heaven itself. That's the picture you have in Revelation of heaven descending, the new city, the new Jerusalem descending to earth so that heaven and earth are united. God and his people are united and the world is full of God's shalom, his peace. It's the best way of describing that new creation, I think, that word shalom. It speaks of just a, a universal harmony and delight among God's creatures where there's reconciliation and there's love and there's mutual delight in one another. Even creation itself is brought back into right relationship with us and with its creator. And in the center of this glorious creation is God himself. And in a mysterious way, the promise is that, that somehow we will be included within the glory of God. It's what it means for us to be glorified that we'll share in the glory of God, in this glorious presence of God, that we will be wrapped up into this life and love 
of God and experience the beauty and the community and the relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit. It's not like God's just going to be out there somewhere at a distance then, but we'll be wrapped up within this beautiful light of the Trinity. Really, when we look at the new creation, we're looking into a fog. We don't know exactly what it's going to be like. There's so much that we can't know. And and that's fine because it's a mystery and we could never possibly comprehend what God's got planned. But it is important to get your head around it to some degree because our role in the present as followers of Jesus is to anticipate that day by how we live and move the story forward. See, this is not supposed to be a story that we just stay at a distance from. This whole story that we've been telling It is not a story that we just look at, like stuff that just happened to other people at other times and other places. This is a story that we are invited into. God doesn't want to become part of your story. He wants to invite you into his. God wants to make you part of this massive story that he's still writing that's going to one day end in that new creation full of shalom. And the way we enter that story is through Jesus. The way we enter that story is that we participate in the death and resurrection of Jesus. We lean into that relationship. We receive him. We are united to him. We are forgiven people. And we are immersed in the identity of Jesus Christ. That's our portal into the story, if you like. Have you seen that movie, Voyage of the Dawn Treader? And there's that scene there. Where, uh, where the kids, I forget their names, Lucy, a couple of others, they're standing there, Susan's another one, uh, not important. They're standing there looking at this painting of the Dawn Treader, the ship, the Dawn Treader. And as they're looking at it, the water starts to spill over the painting. You remember this? And starts to, to cover the floor. The room starts to flood. They see the waves start to go up and down. The ship is bobbing on the ocean and the storm comes alive and suddenly they are thrust into this painting. They find themselves on the beach and the Dawn Treader is there and they're in this world. They started by looking at a painting and now suddenly they're in it. This is the way the Bible works. This really is the way that the scriptures are supposed to work for us. That as we read this story and understand the story, we are drawn into it through Jesus and we find ourselves in the middle of the action. And as I prayed earlier, it's not just a story then that we look at, it's one we look through. And all of life is seen through the lens of this story, through the lens of what God is doing, bringing faith and hope and love to our world through Jesus. We get caught up in it. Our identity is shaped by it. And we become real and active participants in this story, like actors on the stage now performing the gospel for the world to see. That's our role. And that's our calling. This story is a gripping story. It's an immersive story. And it's one that demands our whole beings to be drawn into it. It's not a story that you can bolt onto the side of your life, just have as an attachment. It is to be, this is to be, our defining reality. The story of God, the story of our lives, drawn up and swept up into this huge redeeming and rescuing plan that unbelievably we have been written into and invited to become part of through Jesus. There's just nothing more exciting than that. That's our story. So let's pray. Father, I pray that this year you just grip our hearts with this story. 
and draw us again to the one in whom the whole story rises to its great climax, Jesus Christ. Father, as individuals and as a church, we want to be centered and grounded in him. We thank you that you've drawn us into the story. And I pray this morning, Lord Jesus, that anybody here who doesn't know you, anybody here who doesn't have that relationship with you, Jesus, I pray that right now you'd stir their heart and you would just prompt them and give them the courage to lean into that relationship with you for themselves, to lean into the story. God, you know there's all kinds of stories we can live by, all kinds of other narratives that we can grab a hold of. But Jesus, challenge us and convict us again that this is your story. This is the one story that we are called to live in. And draw those who are not yet part of the story into it by faith in your son, Jesus. And those of us already part of the action, God, would you just give us new passion for the story, new faith this year, fresh hope, and just fresh wind at our back by your Holy Spirit to be your agents of renewal and redemption in this world on your behalf and in your strength as you build your kingdom among us. Just remind us of what a privilege it is to be written into your story. You didn't have to do that for us, Lord, but you have. You work through us and in us. We're so grateful. Thank you that we're a community caught up in your story. We're grateful for that. Continue to make us people who are part of active parts of your story, we pray. In Jesus' name. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.